All right, this morning we're going to continue our study through the New Testament. We have um, just, uh, I think, three more classes after this one before we finish with the New Testament. Today we're going to be looking at Philippians and the Epistles of John. Now, when when asked what was the greatest commandment, Jesus repeatedly replied that that we were to, or the people who asked Him, were to love the Lord their God with all their heart. And the second commandment was like it, to love their neighbor as themselves. Now, to our modern ears, the word love needs some defining, doesn't it? Because there's a great broad perspective of ways that the word love is used in our culture. On the one hand, it could be mere sentiment, like love is warm puppy dog kisses. Or, on the other hand, it could be that it makes no obligations or requirements on the object of its love. In other words, love is never having to say, I'm sorry. So, you can hear both types of statements like that in our culture, that it's mere sentiment or that it has no obligations. So, what is this love? that's talked about in the Scripture. What what exactly is Christ calling for? Is it mere affection or is it freedom from uh, commitment? When Jesus commands His followers to love God and others, is He simply telling us that we should like each other and consider God a good friend? Well, I don't think that's what He was calling for at all. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he he would show later that the ultimate act of love would be to lay down his life for for his friends, for the people whom he loved. And that's the type of love that we should be that should characterize us. It should be a love that's that's willing to be defined by great sacrifice. And that's how God demonstrated his love to us. So that's what we'll see here in these four letters today, three from John and one from Paul to the Philippians. Let's pray and we'll begin this morning. Lord, it is amazing how after a couple thousand years that Your Word is still relevant for us today. It still speaks to us. And we understand that 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 is true because You are God and Your Word will last forever. And also because the Spirit empowers us to understand and to apply it to our lives. So we pray that You would help us this morning to be able to do that. That we would be able to understand it and apply it. Help us to understand it clearly um, and and that we would uh, be changed by it. We thank You for this opportunity to fellowship together and time that we can enjoy around Your Word. May it be what unifies us as a body, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, turn to Third John to start with, and we'll get there in just a second. Perhaps the most famous statement about love in the New Testament is John's simple statement in First John which says, God is love. And so it's appropriate that we begin with his three letters. In his letter, 
in his letters, John provides three simple tests to know whether or not you are a person who has experienced the love of Christ. So in his three letters, he says, here is how you can tell if you have experienced the love of Christ. Alright, so I'm going to have us look at all three of these books um, together to show that, that John has a similar purpose in all of them. But let's begin with the date. Um, we don't know exactly when he wrote these three letters, but they're probably written towards the end of his life. You remember, John was the last one, last uh, disciple to live. Uh, the others were killed, really. I think I think all of them were martyred before him. And he, uh, he was exiled to Patmos, and I think he died of natural causes in the late 90s. The second two letters, second and third John, are both written in anticipation of a personal visit um, for him to appear before these people uh, or individuals, and they're both largely concerned with warnings against false teachers. I've said before on many occasions that every every book in the New Testament, except for uh, Philemon, have warnings against false teachers. Even these two very short books, second and third John, have warnings against false teachers. And so that seems to be one of his purposes. He's trying to guard them and, and make sure that they're standing up for the sake of the name. Look at chapter 1 of 3 John, verse 5. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. John here in 3 John is trying to show them how, to whom they should be showing hospitality. <clears throat> He's saying you, you, need to, you ought to support these men who are going out for the sake of the name. <clears throat> now, 1 John appears to have been a circular letter. That means that it was designed to go to all the churches in the province of, of Asia Minor there including the seven mentioned in Revelation. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, John writes these letters to the seven churches. And uh, it's, it's at least those seven, but probably two more. I think there are at least two more churches in that region that were developed at that time. I think there was one in Laodicea. Or, um, excuse me, that was one of the ones that was included. There was one in Troas. And I can't think of the other one off, off the top of my head, but... So there's several churches that were developed in Asia Minor, which is now modern Turkey. Um, and like these other two letters that he wrote, in 1 John, John is concerned about countering false teaching about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now turn back to 1 John chapter 1. Apparently what's happening is the false teachers were arguing that Jesus had not come in the flesh and that moral purity is not really that much of a priority. In other words, you can be okay spiritually if you're not okay morally. And so, it doesn't really matter how you live. Um, Jesus Christ hasn't come in the flesh because the flesh is bad things. So, since the flesh is bad, you can live however you please. John seems to be counteracting that sort of mentality, the, that sort of false teaching that, that had come into the churches. Look at verse 1. Chapter 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
So John says, I know, okay, I'm an apostle, I know what it was like to be part of Christ. Turn to chapter 2, verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 22. And now we get to see what's at the heart of his argument. What he's trying to counter. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist and the one who denies the Father and the Son. Alright, so John puts it in very clear terms for the churches. If someone says that Jesus is not the Christ, then they are an Antichrist. Okay, it says here, the Antichrist, but but uh, we have to understand that, that he does say later on that there are many Antichrists. Um, in fact, verse 18, it's actually earlier. Children, it is at the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. That's a pretty strong statement. But he's saying these false teachers who are saying that Jesus did not come in the flesh, or that Christ did not come in the flesh, these are the Antichrist. Therefore, in this first letter of John, he uses his writing to provide three tests of faith. Okay, so this is how you can check your spiritual pulse. Three tests of faith in order to determine whether or not a person has experienced the love of Christ. Now, in providing these tests, tests for the people, John is not trying to encourage us to doubt God nor is he suggesting that we're really saved by works. So if we just do enough things, we, we do all these things, then God will save us. Rather, he's simply what Jesus repeated over and over again, and that is that a tree is known by what? Its fruit. Okay? So what we talked about last week. It's known by its fruit. So that doesn't mean if a person bears fruit, that that is the root of why they, they exist. That, that's not why they became a Christian, that is the response or the result of them becoming a Christian. And so, that means that if a person has the love of Christ in them, if Christ has saved them, then it will be demonstrated with visible love. Okay, There's three particular tests of faith. One of them is love. Peter would affirm this as well. He says in 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and choosing sure. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. So as believers, we should naturally check our spiritual pulse to make sure that we are in the faith. And John helps us to do that in his first letter to the churches in Asia Minor. Okay, so there's three tests. The first test is the test of belief. The content of our belief. Anyone who has known the salvation and has been transformed by it acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God in human flesh. Coming in human flesh. Okay, He says this two times. We just read one, chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus human, is the Christ, divine. Okay, So, the one who denies that is not of God. He's a liar. He's an antichrist. But here, he, John states it positively as well in chapter 4, verse 2. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is 
from God. Okay, so if you if you've read John's epistles before, you know that John sees things very black and white, doesn't he? So if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you are of God. All right, it's that simple. So he says it both positively, for chapter four, verse two, and negatively, chapter two, verse twenty-two. So the content of our belief is the first test of whether we are uh, in the love of Christ, whether we have been saved. Secondly, John tells us to test our obedience, the quality of our obedience. Anyone who has been transformed by the love of Christ has left the darkness and now walks in the light, and he, as a result, has been changed. Now, he does he's not changed to be perfect, right? But he is consistently and continually growing and eliminating sin, right? Chapter three, verse ten shows it negatively or excuse me, positively. He states this truth that that the um the second test of our faith is the quality of our obedience. Chapter three, verse ten. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Okay, so if you practice righteousness, if it you make it a continual habit to obey God, then you are a believer. Okay, unbelievers don't make that a continual habit of theirs. They're not practicing. That's what the idea of practicing is. It doesn't mean that they're perfect in it. It means that they are that they are continuing in it. They are consistent in it. Chapter one, verse six shows this truth negatively. Chapter 1, verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Okay, so John's saying it's more than what your words express. The test of your faith has little to do with your words. It does have to do with the content of your belief, but it, it has more to do with the way you live. You can talk all you want about being a Christian. But if you walk in darkness, he says very plainly in verse 6, you do not practice the truth. If you are walking in sin, if you are continually, habitually falling into and enjoying and and not turning from sin, then you are not a believer. Alright? Now, these passages, we must understand, do not they do not indicate or imply that we have to attain perfection in order to have the test of faith. Rather, it means that that these passages have the idea that we have to be increasing in our growth, our sanctification over the years. So that while there may be some times where you have pitfalls, okay, the the overall pattern should be upward. Okay, so if your life in Christ started here, it's not necessarily going to be a straight line, never any dips, on to, to perfect sanctification, eventually glorification, right? This is what happens after you die. And Christ makes you like Him to be perfect. But in the, in, in the meantime, He's making you perfect. It doesn't happen like this in the Christian life, does it? Hey, it doesn't happen like this either. 
Or like this, where we get to a plateau where, you know what, if I just dedicate my life to God, then now I'm, I'm living a higher life and I'm not going to fall into that sin anymore. I have victory over it. It's, it's final. It doesn't happen like that either. Now, you know from experience that it happens more like this, doesn't it? The overall pattern is upward, but there's lots of dips. Okay, There's lots of times where we fall into sin, but the righteous man falls seven times and does what? Gets back up again. Okay, So here's how we can tell if a person is a real believer. They could have this time of seemingly progress and they fall off. Okay, We know from Hebrews that that's not a believer because a true believer will persevere. So these are signs of, of life. These are signs... We know from Mark chapter 4 from the parable of the soils, right? That a person can sprout up initially and look like a real plant. See some leaves there looking like a real thing, but but Christ says, you know how you can tell if this is really a believer? You just got to wait. You see if they bear fruit. Sometimes the sun comes and and it scorches it. And it kills it. Sometimes the the roots didn't go down far enough and so it, 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 it dies. Sometimes it gets choked out by the weeds around it. Okay, so the real test of faith is continuing on all the way to the end. And there may be some dips, but, but ultimately, true believers will persevere. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 7. And notice how sin becomes less and less a part of a believer's life. It should be something that we are turning from. Chapter 1, verse 7, But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So, the second test of faith, the second test of whether we're in the love of Christ is the quality of our obedience. Are we people who are eliminating sin? Are we harboring it, enjoying it, hanging on to it, not willing to turn from it? Uh, those, are, those are things that unbelievers do. We should be turning from sin. The third test of our faith is the character of our love. The character of our love. Positively, we see that in chapter 3, verse 14. Hey, Paul, or, excuse me, John says... We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Verse 24, The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So the character of our love is an evidence of our faith. 
chapter 4, verse 20 shows us this negatively. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Okay, again, words are cheap. We can talk all we want about being a believer, but do we show genuine Christian love? Okay, that means not being kind to those who are kind to us. That is part of what love is, but it's even more than that. It's showing love to those who are not lovely. People who who are um, annoying. People who uh, we don't like to spend time with. People who who rub us the wrong way. Particularly that love is displayed where? In what location? Okay, it's within the body of Christ. That's the best way that you can show your love. You you commit yourself to a body of Christ, okay, a local church. You commit yourself to a local church and try loving those people, not just for a couple weeks or a couple months, but do it for years. And that will give you an indication of where you are with God. Okay, if you find yourself not being able to love a, a local church or a group of people who are committed to the same truths as you, then there may be a problem with your spiritual life. Okay, I'm not here to try to get you to doubt your salvation. That's not what my goal is here. But I do want us to see that the character of our faith is determined, or the basis of our, I'm sorry, the fruit of our faith is determined by how we live. You want to get take a pulse, okay, of your spiritual life, then these are how you do it. All right. Um, John is not the only one concerned about love and our relationship to Christ. Paul also is, and that's where we're going to turn next to Philippians. Any questions on first, second, or third John? I know we didn't give it a whole lot of time, but um, just want to give you a brief overview. By the way, there is a a uh, an outline for each of these three books on the back of your handout. And there's also a line on the right side of, of the back where you can write notes on there. I put that on there for your benefit. Bill? Uh, not a question, but a comment. Yep. Is that okay? Absolutely. Uh, there's a real popular radio personality that comes on this area that tells believers to deny first John Yeah, I've heard. Um, I've heard a. S- <laughs> he was trying to be discreet, but uh, yeah, we we got to be careful with um, with uh, with that for sure because there are lots of people who are trying to lead, sometimes knowingly lead people astray, and other times they are genuinely deceived to believe that. I think that's just the nature of falling after Satan is we can easily be deceived and that's why it's so important to be a part of a, a, a good church that is 
focusing on the Word of God as the very center of what we do. Do you have a follow-up to that, Bill? <laughs> All right, Gail. Um, oh, yes, I didn't give that, did I? Um, it's probably in the early 90s A.D. So um, we we don't know exactly for sure because it's probably written towards the end of John li- John's life. He calls the believers their children, my little children. Um, so it seems like he has a special relationship with them. It's probably written before Revelation, which is probably in the mid-90s. Um, so, I'd say the early 90s. Yes, Sandra. Um, the way I saw me up is that talking about God's love, we show God that we love Him by our obedience and that we persevere through our obedience to the end. Yeah, Jesus said, John fourteen fifteen, I think it is, if you love me, keep my commandments. So that's, I think, the point you're making, that the way that we show our love for God is by obeying. And um, I think that's clear in the Gospels. Trish? Uh, well, I'm just kind of thinking about our last discussion with Peter and um, how we can mm-hmm. James, yep, yep. Right. Yeah. I think he includes all three of those things that we talked about, which is the content of our belief is important, but that's not enough. And that's your point. Is it's got to show forth in obedience, and then the second part of that way it shows forth is in our love, which is what he says later on in the book. All right, any other thoughts or comments? These are good. All right, Philippians. Uh, the date, we don't know when this letter was written either, mainly because we don't know from where it was written. Now, we have an idea of where Paul was at the time. Where was Paul? What not in the city, but he was in prison, right? We know he was in prison, but unlike us, we you know, if we were in prison, we would be in prison one time, and we know exactly when that happened. But for him, he's in prison multiple times, and so it could have happened at at many different times. So it could have been a Roman imprisonment or another one um, in Ephesus or Caesarea. We can't really say for sure. So the best we can do is say that it was written sometime between the mid-50s and the early 60s. Okay, that's not the 1960s. That's the, that's the first 50s and 60s, A.D. Alright? So, we don't know when the letter was written exactly, but we do know quite a bit about the people to whom Paul wrote because it was written to the Philippians. The 
people in the city of Philippi. This city was a Roman colony on the north end of the Aegean Sea, which was a major um, trading route, um, major stop on the way to Istanbul, current day Istanbul. At that time it was Byzantium. But, um, so it was a very strategic city. Lots of people there, popular place for retirement of Ro- Roman soldiers and officials. And, um, and you remember that Paul formed this church or founded this church around 50 A.D. during his second missionary journey. Remember, he had a vision um, in Macedonia about, uh, or a vision of a man in Macedonia begging him to come over and help. And so Paul went there, and as he did, he went, he stopped in Philippi nearby. And um, and as an indication as to how much of a Gentile area it was, there was no synagogue there. And um, instead, he found a place outside the city where a few Jewish women gathered to pray. And that's where Paul led one to Christ. What was her name? Lydia. Right, the seller of purple, Lydia. And um, she wasn't even a local, but um, but she came to Christ under Paul's testimony. And as uh, he also healed a demon-possessed slave girl, which that caused a riot because the owner of her was making lots of money off of her uh, being able to predict the future. And um, as a result, Paul was put in prison. And Paul and Silas, you remember, um, did not have to stay in prison very long because the prison gates were open for them and the Philippian jailer was about to kill himself when um, Paul said, wait a second, don't do anything, we're still here. And that man asked how he could be saved and you can read all about that in Acts chapter 16. And that's one of the famous verses that we know, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your house. So all of them had to believe and, and and as a result, all of his household was saved. Well, the next day, Paul and Silas were acquitted and asked to leave the city. And so they met with Lydia and a few other Christians and they left. So what we know about this city is that he didn't spend a whole lot of time there, amazingly. Some places he spent years and years and years working with these people or at least months. I think there was one place, and I can't think of it off the top of my head, that he stayed for three years. But Philippi was not like that. It was only really a matter of a few days. So Philippi, a largely Gentile area, was born out of persecution and suffering. And uh, and quickly, Paul was gone. And as we'll see, it was a church that was continuing to face persecution as well. This letter reveals that this church was taking its share of suffering, and so Paul writes to them. Now, while Paul's writing, again, Paul is in prison. We know that from the letter. And he's facing some uncertain terms. And and particularly, he faced a very real possibility of an imminent execution. And so, despite his uncertain future, he desires to write a letter to this Philip, this city of Philippi. And one of the words that you'll see over and over again is this word, joy. Paul writes in prison with great joy. So the purpose, why did Paul write this letter? Now, given the circumstance, we might think that this church, because they didn't have a whole lot of time with Paul, that maybe they were falling into heresy 
but in fact, that doesn't seem to be the case at all. Rather, it seems that Paul had a number of practical reasons to write this letter. So let me give you three practical reasons why Paul wrote this letter. Turn to chapter 4, verse 18. Chapter 4, verse 18 gives the first practical reason why Paul wrote to the Philippians. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Apparently, Paul had received a gift from the Philippian church. Um, the fragrant aroma there is probably not doesn't mean they sent him cologne there. It's probably some sort of gift, and he's saying it's a fragrant aroma to God, to to me and to God, in the sense that that it's very well received. Thank you for that. So, so the first practical reason is that Paul is writing a thank you letter. Paul is writing a thank you letter, and you can read about that in chapter four, verses ten through nineteen. Paul rejoices in their gifts to him. The second reason is to update them about his circumstances. To update them regarding his circumstances. And he wanted to encourage them that they might not be discouraged because he's in chains, because he's in prison. I mean, you can imagine how, how much they, they uh, desired to hear from him. I mean, this man who uh, had uh, sacrificed for them and had made a special trip to them and uh, had started their church, now they're concerned about his well-being. And so he wanted to encourage them, give them an update. Thirdly, not only does he want to encourage them, he also wants to reassure them about Epaphroditus. Okay, you can just call him E period. Epaphroditus. His, if you want the spelling, it's in verse 18 there. Epaphroditus was the one who brought the gift to Paul and they they knew, the Philippians knew, that he was at the point where he had um, had uh, taken on a great amount of illness and, and nearly died. And so the Philippians heard about it and they were concerned and so Paul wants to write to encourage them and just tell them that Epaphroditus was doing well. So Philippians is much like a thank you letter that you would write where you'd include some details about what's going on in your life and perhaps some other things that that, that your readers would want to hear. Paul is uh, writing differently than you, however, because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so like this, it's not just about circumstantial news. This letter has a powerful description of who Christ is and, and His love for believers. Let me have you look at that outline in the back for Philippians. Chapter 1, extended greetings and prayer that our love might abound. We'll look at this here in just a second. And then chapter 2, how would our love abound? That our love might abound in Christ-like imitation. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that we should abound in humility and perseverance, chapter 3, and then also in contented joy or simply contentment, chapter 4. All right, but before we move into this, um, there's a book that I've been wanting to read. I've heard lots of good things about, and it's about Paul's prayers. This is a book I just recently got called The Spiritual Reformation, um, Priorities from Paul and His Prayers. So if you want to see more about how Paul prays and, and maybe see what kind of prayers God is looking for, 
This takes all of the prayers of Paul in the New Testament and it basically um, uh, exposes them or tries to understand the meaning of them and what the content is. You'll find yourself praying a little bit differently from what I hear. I, I plan to read it here in the near future. Yeah, D.A. Carson. He's a professor at Westminster Seminary. Um, guy I have a great amount of respect for. Don't agree with everything that he writes or believes, but call the spiritual revel- call to spiritual reformation. Priorities from Paul and his prayers by D.A. Carson. All right, let's get into the major themes. I said that um, chapter two is about the us imitating Christ. Okay, and then how it's done in chapters three and four, which is through humility, perseverance, and contentment. The basis for what Paul has to say in this letter is the astounding fact that God in the person of Christ humbled Himself on the cross. And He loved sinners like you and me. And what's amazing about that love that Christ showed for you and me is that nothing in Christ, nothing in us, excuse me, compelled Him to love us. Not as if we're like a cute little baby and we just want to squeeze them. It's so cute. That's not the way we were before God, were we? We were His enemies. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We hated God. And yet God loved us despite all that. God loved us despite the fact that we were unlovely and so nothing in us compelled Him to love us. This is ultimately the love of Christ. And that love that we have for God, the love that that John talks about, as John says in 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that we that He loved us and sent His Son as a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So for Paul, the same thing is true. Now, this love stands at the center of everything that that is he's about to say. This love is not the love that our culture talks about. Okay? Paul begins his letter by praying that the Philippians' love would abound more and more. Turn to chapter 1, verse 9. Turn to chapter 1, verse 9. Notice his prayer for the believers there. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. He prays this because he knows that once a person comes to Christ, once the Philippians come to Christ, the job is not done. He wants to see them presented as spotless on the day of Christ. So he wants to see them, his love, their love abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment. That's the goal that Paul is looking for. And the rest of his letter really is an outworking of what he's talking about there. Okay, in what way is their love to grow? Well, fundamentally, it is to imitate Christ. That's seen in chapter... Well, let's look at chapter 1, verse 27 first. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of God. This is how I want you to respond to the love of Christ. 
Um, in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says that more than anything else, he wants them to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. That's actually Paul speaking of himself. He wants to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. In chapter 4, verse 1, um, he concludes this with what he wants for the Philippians as well. And so he encourages them to stand fast. But most famously, the imitation of Christ is seen in chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You want to see an example of true love? Look at Jesus Christ. Have the, have the attitude that He had. It was an attitude of genuine love. And what did that love, how, how did that love show? We'll look at that here in just a second. And that is through humility, first of all. But before I do that, let me just make application with regard to this point. Paul's prayer for them is that their love would abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment. And what I think we should take from there is that there is nothing higher in this life than to know God. There are no secret truths that we have to learn to to understand how to live as Christians other than a personal and growing knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want to understand the Gospel and what Christ did. We need to understand who Christ is and what He is like, what He has done. And then having experienced that power, we need to imitate His attitude. There's nothing higher in life than to know God. And that's why it's, again, so important to be a part of a church that keeps God at the center. And, and it's, part, it's important for each of us to be making sure that God is at the center of what we do. So how do we imitate Christ's attitude? How do we do that? There's three ways. First of all, humility. Secondly, perseverance. And thirdly, contentment. Paul tries to put his finger on the heart of what it means to imitate Christ. So he does this in chapter 2, verses 1-11, through by talking about his humility. Very well-known passage, but let me read it for you. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that in the name, at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Humility is ultimately seen in which action of Christ? According to those verses. 
Okay? It was his death. It was ultimately his coming to earth which was which culminated in his death. I mean the greatest act of humility. Think about it. The God of the universe, the creator, allowing himself to become man and then giving himself to die. And so that's what humility that's what the the ultimate what ultimate humility looks like. It's not an internal feeling or a theoretical knowledge. Paul is talking here about obedience. Okay, that's how obedient that's how humility is shown through obedience. The um the saying goes that everyone wants to be thought of as a servant, but no one wants to be treated like one. How do you respond when you're treated like a servant? That tells you what kind of humility you have or lack thereof. It's a difficult question to ask yourself. How do you how do you feel when someone treats you like a ser, ser, like a servant? Well, I need to move quickly through these next two: perseverance and contentment. The Paul certainly perseveres. We know that from his life, and Paul talks about that. Um, but but Paul points to someone who is a greater perseverer, if that's a word, than him. And that is Christ. Christ Christ could have given up. Okay, we think of Christ, well, he's God, he never would have done that. But think about how much he had to go through and think about who he was, who he is. And so um so not only is Paul a good example of perseverance, but Jesus Christ is an even better one because he can't he, he persevered to the point of death on the cross. The way that Paul puts it is even death on the cross. Now that's ultimate perseverance. And so, for us, that means that we need to persevere as well. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Um, if you uh, want to write those down. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And then contentment. Our love is to grow in humility and perseverance. That's how we imitate Christ, but also in contentment. If you, if your joy is tied to a person other than Christ, or it's tied to a group of people, or if your contentment or joy is tied to your circumstances, then what's going to happen when those things are taken away from you? Where will your joy go? It's going to plummet, right? The only way that you're going to have joy, despite your circumstances, is if you put your hope, your joy in something that will last longer than your circumstances, and that is in Jesus Christ and in His Word. And we also, in order to do that, need to have a long-term perspective, and that is suffering first, then glory. That's exactly what we just read about in chapter 2, verses 1-11. through Jesus had to suffer first, even to the point of death. Then comes glory. There's a period of delay here. He was glorified in His resurrection, but the ultimate glory for Christ will come when He reigns on this earth. And for you, it's the same thing. Don't, don't enjoy the spoils before the war is over. Suffering first, then glory. There's going to be suffering in this life. And as believers, we have to get used to it.
That's the only way we can have contentment. Chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. We don't have time to read those, but I'll let you look at those when you get a chance. Um, Let me see if I missed anything for you. All right. I uh, have a little more to say, but that's going to be where we have to stop tonight, or this morning. Feels like tonight after all that. Um, Any questions or comments? Yes, Sandra. Uh huh. That was John. Yep. Said John or John the Baptist? Anyone know? John the Baptist. Thank you. Yeah, that was John the Baptist. Um, but Paul did say that he had, in fact, in Philippians, he talks about all these things that he can boast about. But he says, you know what? I count all those things as what? As rubbish or lost, dung. They're 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 useless. Next to knowing Christ. That's ultimately what Paul was, was looking for because he had that final goal in mind. Vicky? I noticed one thing that struck me in chapter two about it. Um, he was humble and Right. Exactly. Good. Thank you. All right. I uh, put some handouts in the bulletins, but it may have been after you grabbed one. So if you um, can check your bulletin, see if you have this this uh, handout for this morning's message, a summary of Revelation. Anyone need one? All right, Gail. All right. Let me pray, and um, we'll be dismissed. We got about seven minutes. You guys need one too? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank You for um, Your Word. Thank You for the love that was displayed to us uh, through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask that You would help us to, to respond to that by living for You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.